Hello, everyone, and welcome to From Tip to Tail, a podcast dedicated to animal welfare. This podcast is sponsored by Cuddly. Cuddly is the only crowdfunding platform built specifically for animal welfare organizations worldwide. I'm Bridget. And I'm Sydney. We've spent years working with animal rescues and have seen such amazing innovation, strength, and heart. Having this personal connection with rescuers has made us more informed, grateful, and inspired. We hope by giving you an inside look, you will be too. Today, we're going to be sitting down with Amy, founder and president of Pathway to Hope, which is an organization dedicated to the rescue, rehabilitation, and adoption of abandoned dogs and cats with a focus on special needs cases. Pathway to Hope has been around for years, and they continue to be a staple in the rescue world because of their endless dedication to making animal lives better. That's why we were so happy to bring Amy on to talk about her experiences over the last decade in rescue and how narrative writing makes a difference in fundraising. If you like this episode, be sure to click that subscribe button to listen in on similar stories. Other than that, let's get started. Hi there, Amy. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Really wonderful in the midst of the holiday season. So I feel like there's a little bit of nice cocktail of stress and cheer. (laughs) Yeah, right. The name of the game always, right? Yeah, for sure. I have three boys, so they keep me busy now. (laughs) I can only imagine. That's amazing. Well, so we know there's going to be so much to get into because you're one of our rescues that is, I'm not sure if you've been around for a long time or we just know your name and your name is kind of always on our lips. (laughs) We are big fans of all the work you do. And so that's why we're really excited to dig into how everything got started and how you came to animal welfare in itself. So could we start with how did Pathway to Hope start? So Pathway to Hope started in 2010. I started in animal rescue when I was looking to adopt a husky puppy. And it was actually, I was with my husband at the time, who was my boyfriend, and he wanted a dog. And I was kind of like on the fence about it, which is really funny at this point because of what (laughs) I do. (laughs) But we had a cat and we were in an apartment and then as soon as we moved into a house, I started looking into it. And honestly, I knew nothing. This was 16 years ago. So I knew nothing about rescue. I like did, you know, Google searches and started learning about rescue. And as soon as I learned, obviously I was like, okay, well, we're obviously not buying a dog. Rescue wasn't Facebook. Everything wasn't as big 16 years ago. So there wasn't as much awareness, but I started to learn about rescues. We adopted our dog. We started, like, I always jump like full in. We, we fell in love with him, obviously. And then we started volunteering for another rescue group. And then we volunteered for a couple of years and I learned about rescue and kind of like how different rescue groups work out. And the intention was never to start my own rescue. It just was, I had like a very clear vision of how. I wanted things to go and like the work that I was doing. And I, I kind of jumped headfirst into it, but just found my path. And we started fostering moms and puppies. And the first one was Hope, who our rescue is named after, who came to us with nine puppies. And we eventually adopted her and one of her puppies. And she was best dog ever. She and one of her puppies had special needs. So it was shortly thereafter that, like I said, I kind of found my niche and my vision and just felt like I really wanted to work in rescue and work with kind of like-minded people and sort of 
rescue world, it can be complicated. It can be dramatic. And I was building a family and I wanted to focus on the work that we did. And I found a group of people and that's where we kind of came together. I feel like that was a lot of information really quick. <laughs> so, No, it was great. Mm-hmm. I have to ask though, as someone who was like on the fence about a dog in general to adopting a Husky, <laughs> right? do you feel like looking back, you would have maybe chosen a different breed? Are you like Husky people? No, not. I, we definitely would not have chosen a different breed because it's like, I think that that's just our energy level, you know, we actually, yeah. I mean, we ended up with two Huskies and two Malamutes for nine years together. And then they all got older and passed away. And right now we don't have a Husky. We have a shepherd mix and we have, I don't know, a little foofy dog. I don't know how I ended up with her, but she's like seven and a half pounds. She's a Pomeranian Chihuahua. So she almost looks like a little Husky and she acts like she's worse than any Husky I ever got. (laughs) Like the energy level was just a good match for us. So I think it actually worked out because even though they're a lot of work, they're kind of like cat dogs where they're very independent. So. We had our own little pack and she's at my feet right now. Let me see if I can charge her. There she is. Oh, very sweet. Oh, she's precious. Yeah, she's cute, but she's naughty. Like, don't let the cute. I say it's always the small ones that are pretty naughty, though. I know. I know. It's a great breed and, and we really fell in love with the breed. Amazing. Well, so, I mean, starting back then, I feel like you had to see a lot of iterations of your rescue in general. I can only imagine. So starting out, I mean, I know you said you're, you're foster based, but what was your really your focus when you first started and how have you kind of transformed your rescue? Have, has a lot changed over the years? A lot has. And, you know, I was thinking about it and I think the best way to say it is we're like very much a need-based rescue. So we started out rescuing stray and feral cats because I had found some stray and feral cats when I was at a bachelorette party and it was like right at the same time as we founded the rescue. And then we were doing a lot of huskies and malamutes and rescue from out of the area because we had begun networking with groups. And then we started to be a little bit more well-known in our area. So then we were doing a little more local rescue. So we started to rescue pit bulls. So it's funny when people say they're looking for a dog and they ask me, I'm like, well, most of our dogs are huskies or pit bulls. So you need to like be looking for a high energy dog. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we kind of adapted in that way. And I would say from day one, like special needs has always been, and medical needs has always kind of been like close to my heart. So, and like I said, one of Hope's puppies, the reason we kept him too, is he had, he had special needs. He had to sit up in a chair. He had, um, a problem with his esophagus. So he had to actually be upright when he ate for for his whole life. He lived 11 years. So starting out there and just kind of finding my niche, but we kind of, like I said, we've adapted like during COVID, we we're not really a puppy rescue. We've had puppies every year, but we're not, we don't do high volume, but during COVID we saw the need. So many families were looking to adopt. And so we actually did more adoptions that year than any other year because we were able to sort of adapt our needs and say, there's all these people willing to help and willing to foster and willing to adopt. So let's try to make some matches. So one of the big things, I mean, talking about how we've changed over the years is we worked a lot with um, boarding facilities and we found that it wasn't wonderful boarding facilities had doggy daycares, 
Um, but we found that it wasn't necessarily conducive to dogs that had behavioral issues. And a lot of them would kind of get stuck long-term. I mean, we had some dogs that were living and boarding for a couple of years. So we just purchased in August. So we're going in a couple months. So it's been like an absolutely insane year. We purchased a property and a home and it's a foster home. Basically it's not, there's rooms, nobody's in crates unless they're being crate trained. So it's like a foster slash rescue slash rehabilitation home. So. And that's Hope's home, right? That's Hope's home. Yes. Yeah, sorry about that. It's been a doozy of a year. We just got our fences up actually like a couple of days ago. We, we had a temporary fence, but we just got like our play yards, which is the, amazing for the dogs. So it's been for us to be able to find the right property, find the right town and be able to find this great space that we saw the potential in, you know, within we're a small rescue. So our budget is usually less than $200,000 a year. So We've made it work because we have a really great team. We don't have a big team. We have a small group of volunteers, but they're incredibly dedicated. Wow. So a couple of questions. I think the first is going to be, you said you just got your fences up. So when do you anticipate, is it, is it going to start housing do- or not housing, but boarding dogs soon? Oh, they're there. They're there. They've been there. <laughs> we closed at the end of August and they were, the dogs were there within a month just because when I say we're need-based, like they needed a place to go, you know, and these are dogs that we had in boarding and their time in boarding just was coming to an end. So when we went there, when I first went to look at the property, a cat walks up to me. I'm like, oh, great. I guess that's a sign. And it was a stray cat, really super friendly. So he actually, as soon as we purchased the home, because the people were feeding him outside, as soon as they moved out, we actually moved him in and had somebody going to the house every day to feed him. <laughs> so. There, it was like from day one, we started doing renovations, but they've been kind of living through the renovations because the need was just there. And the dogs and cats that are there are not your, I mean, we're still foster based. So your typical dogs and cats that are a little bit more adoptable and don't need a lot of work are in foster homes. These dogs and cats either have special needs or need behavioral training. And the woman that lives there, her name is Bridget Gallagher. She's wonderful. I've known her for 11 years. So we've kind of, she taught me how to trap cats. Like she's great. And she taught me a lot about training. She lives there and she takes care of them. And she's, this is sort of her dream and our dream. And it kind of just meshed together at the right time. So yeah, it's been exciting. It's been a big year. I love too that um, you said it's not necessarily like a boarding facility. It's a home. Animals aren't necessarily in crates. They're they're in a home environment, which I think is, I think we've talked about it before, just how crucial that is to an animal's emotional healing, just being in a home environment versus being in a kennel, like they would be at the shelter. Right. And so the house had an upstairs that was converted into like two giant bedrooms. So what we did is we, it's like you took two big rooms and basically split them down the middle. So now there are four, there are four rooms with little entrances. So there's four rooms upstairs and then we have a dog that kind of like is in with Bridget's dogs downstairs and then we have two cat rooms. So we have the property to be able to expand, which is nice because we're looking into, you know, what we call a tiny house, which is like heated, air-conditioned, separate house that would be outside. We have the electric run and everything. We're just waiting to be able to raise the money to, to put it down. 
It's amazing. It almost sounds like you're you're starting like a bunch of little like frat houses and sororities <laughs> for, for these dogs. And it feels like one of those movies from like the 80s where it's like the odd bunch, the ones with special needs all coming together to to do something special. It kind of reminds me of Hotel for Dogs. Do you remember that movie with um, Emma Roberts? And she finds like an abandoned hotel and she turns all the rooms to bring in all of like the homeless dogs. And there's like special needs dogs. And it's it's basically, ho- it's such a, a good movie. I highly recommend you watch. Yeah. See, now I'm like in a different stage in my life. So I say that it reminds me of the day the crayons came home. <laughs> the book, it's a storybook and like all the crayons are like disfigured by the time they all come back together. And he builds like a little house that they'll all fit in. Oh, that's so amazing. And I love, I mean, talk about need base. The fact that you have like the day after you're, you're closing the deal, like, like a cat's walking up, like, hello, do you have any vacancy? Yeah. It's really amazing. We felt so bad because he had the entire house for a while and then he was going to have to go in a cat room. And it's funny because the woman, Joanne, who was volunteering and feeding him every day, adopted him and took him home. So I named him Carson after Downtown Abbey, the butler. Oh, yes. That's so funny. Oh, my gosh. That's an amazing initiative that you did, though. I feel like it's it feels so attainable, unattainable for so many small organizations to have like a space that's entirely their own that isn't like shared with their family. And like, cause I know that's, I feel like the majority of the rescues we work with, they are, have just animals filling their home. And at a certain point it doesn't, it's not reasonable. <laughs> and I think they, a lot, a lot of them recognize that. So it's an amazing feat. And I love how you mentioned that your budget, because I think I think a lot of organizations will assume that you have a much bigger budget and that you have endless resources, but you kind of just figured out how to make this work for you. Right. And it, like I said, our budget tops is 200,000. It's probably a little bit more this year, obviously, but we found a loan company that was willing to work with us and we purchased the house and we just fingers crossed and had a lot of faith in like the people that we've worked with over the past 10 plus years and everybody has chipped in together. And it's just like, we don't have large donors, you know, that you would see that are with big organizations. I mean, we have very generous donors, but it's really just kind of the little guys all coming together. I mean, we do a a cookie cutter and an ornament fundraiser with my son and like he raises like $500 at a time. But which is a lot, I think, for for the ornaments, he does a great job. But I'm saying like those, it's those like little initiatives that come together to to build what we do. Well, and that's what so we had Ramapo on earlier last week, and that's what they were saying as well. And I think there is that thought of like if you don't have the big donors, you can't make the big moves. But I think what we've all seen because of the pandemic is it's actually a little bit safer to have a ton of small donors because the likelihood that you're going to have a mass amount of them drop off is really low compared to if you have one really big donor that falls off, that suddenly isn't donating, like that can cripple an organization. Yeah, for sure. I actually work at Rabari at Ramapo. I do I do fundraising there. So this is like, I, I started out in grant writing and nonprofits in the arts. And then like my life, adopt the dog and it slowly just transitioned into like <laughs> everything about animal welfare. <laughs> so 
I mean, they're a great organization too and do a lot of great work and work with a lot of special needs cases. So it's, it's kind of just a perfect fit. I and mean, we're actually partnering on a case right now. I mean, and they were singing your praises as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so if you were writing grants um, in the arts, is that something now you've pivoted to, to try and get grants for the rescue? Or is that something that you're not quite dipping into yet? <laughs> Yeah, so when I was hired at Rabari, and then obviously in my own rescue work, I was doing grant writing, but I learned that, you guys can probably attest to this, that grants are wonderful and they're very helpful, but you might apply for 10 and get one. Whereas we found that the appeals and really like storytelling and sharing the stories of these animals, that's what is the best fundraising tool for us in rescue and what it's really each individual person that comes together that makes it work. And and the foundations, like I said, are wonderful, but the individual donors and supporters are really what holds us up. So I, I do grant writing, but it's a smaller part of my job than I, I was hired as a grant writer. And then my with Megan, who you spoke with last last week, like my job totally transitioned when we said like this is really our niche. This is where we come together to save more animals. That's such an interesting point too, because I think there are so many organizations that are like, we don't have the budget that we could if only we had grants, but it is, you're competing against a lot of other organizations. You're bound to get a lot of like rejections for your grants. And even um, we were speaking with another rescue who talked about how important grants were for her. And she was working in uh, Mexico and saying, yeah, I take six months out of the year just to sit down and remove myself from rescue and just knock on doors and write grants and just hammer down. And it's, that's almost what you have to do is it becomes a full-time job that even takes you away from the animals, which isn't always something that every organization can afford to do. Yeah. And I think the storytelling is really like, that's what I would encourage anybody starting out to do more of. You don't have to be a perfect writer, you know, it's just share their pictures and share their story and People connect with that and people want to work together to help. And like I said, the foundations are amazing and the grants are amazing. But when we're like on the ground running, sometimes it's hard to stop yourself and sit down and and write and knock on the doors and make the phone calls. And, you know. Yeah. It feels a lot less fulfilling, I think, to fill out paperwork than to like (laughs) have an animal in your arms. (laughs) Which is why I'm where I, you know, I was doing like arts administration in the past and doing a lot of sitting at the computer and it was good. It was fulfilling in different ways. It was a little less dramatic. That part was nice, but this is definitely where I found my life's path. Well, so I don't know that we want to steal your secret sauce, but could you tell us when you're doing storytelling, if there's some key takeaways that you found that are really helpful with your community? Obviously, every community is going to be a little bit different. Different rescues have different niches, but I'm wondering as far as avenues that you speak to your community and like storytelling tools, are there any takeaways you've learned in in animal welfare? I think you just have to make the connection. Like I said, I don't think it, it takes the most amazing writer or, you know, your grammar doesn't have to be perfect. I think it's just however you can establish that connection. So if it's that you physically go and spend time with the animal and take pictures. I'm much more motivated to write 
after I've met an animal, you know, and after I've taken the pictures and I have ideas in my head, but I think it's just, and then there's no secret sauce because we're all in this together. Like I, I truly believe that. So if there's ever, I actually used to do workshops on fundraising and for nonprofits in not in rescue, but in different areas. So like, I don't ever feel like it's a competition. I feel like we're all in this for the same reason. So I don't worry about somebody stealing somebody's donors or that sort of thing, because I feel like the biggest thing is the connection. So I think that when you're writing, you want people to connect with that animal story and what they felt and what they went through, you know, and I think being very honest and like forthcoming, but not, not embellishing is also a little important. (laughs) So making sure like that's their legitimate story in real time and what's going on and and try to connect with their emotions for sure. It is amazing. I mean, and when you've seen as many fundraisers and social media posts as we have, I feel like there are ones that really like take your breath away a lot of times. And it is always that like lack of embellishment almost and like a little hint of color where suddenly you're like transported to like being next to the animal and understanding what they're going through in a more specific way. So I've read about a lot of like dogs with mange and things like that, but it's like when you speak to exactly how that's impacting that animal, I think that's where it really breaks your heart and really captures your attention in a big way. Yeah. And where they've come from and kind of, you know, where they're going, like we're working on two senior cases and that. So we had two Huskies and two Malamutes for a very long time. But what I didn't mention is we always had like a rotating spot for a senior. And we had three seniors that ended up staying with us and being hospice during that time. We're working on two senior cases right now. So I think like that's understanding where they've come from and what they're going through. And if there was neglect in the past, I mean, one of the cases is just heartbreaking because it's not a situation of neglect. It's a situation where the family truly can't keep the dog and just sort of connecting with the confusion that the dog is going to feel, but making sure that she's going to a place where immediately she's going to be comforted and people understanding that we try like when we're telling stories, like different points of view, sometimes of the rescuer versus the dog. And, you know, definitely. And I mean, I think there are some stories too, you'll hear them over and over, but after a certain number of times, like one will hit you in a different way where suddenly you understand what all the other stories we're talking about. Cause I think like, maybe a lot of people kind of on some level understand like, well, when you're in a shelter, it has an emotional impact on a dog, but it's not until you see, Hey, like an hour after being out of the shelter in a home setting, this dog was acting totally different or, you know, yeah. Things like that. Things that feel like very rudimentary to the average rescuer are super profound to the rest of us who are just animal lovers. (laughs) For sure. And, you know, I think sometimes there are so many stories, but the reality is that that's what's real. Like we're overwhelmed because we have two urgent cases in the course of 24 hours, you know? So sometimes I think we try to balance. We don't want to share too much and be overwhelming to people, but that's just, I mean, what you share at Cuddly, that's the reality of what's going on and they need help, whether it's too many or not too many. We're trying to work so hard so that it's not too many and we have to close our doors. Yes. And that's why, I mean, sometimes I hear that we're a lot (laughs) for people when they see our posts. 
But all I think is like, you're just seeing a photo, like think about the rescuer who made the choice to take in this animal who are surrounded by other animals. I'm like, that just like breaks my heart. It's like, and then a lot of them feel like they're doing it alone sometimes because we work with so many organizations that are really like one and two people and a mismatch of different fosters that may or may not be available. So that's where I, I love highlighting these stories in like a really transparent way. Cause it's like, yes, this is so hard and someone is doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. So tell us, I know you said adoptions went up over COVID in the past year, but obviously, I mean, I feel like so much has changed and I think people, the average person is still kind of in that mindset of like so many adoptions. It's so great. But I know that there has been a shift with different organizations and animal welfare in general since the pandemic hit and people aren't adopting animals like they used to. So can you tell us a little bit about how that was at the initial like set of uh, the pandemic and then where you are now? Yeah, it's a big shift this year. So we placed, you know, over a hundred dogs during that year, hundred dogs and cats, which is a big number for us. But then what we're seeing now are a lot of surrenders and luckily not our own. I mean, we we have a pretty thorough screening process. So we, you know, we do home visits, we do interviews, we check their vet reference. And being a smaller rescue, we get very few returns. But we're finding that the average call for a surrender right now that we're trying to help, like an individual, they're between the ages of six months and a year. So there are a lot of dogs that cats not as much. I think people can go back to work and their cat is fine hanging out on their own, you know. But the dogs, I think people got in a little bit over their head, you know, and a lot of genuine people, but with all the best intentions, but life gets busy again. And they're like, whoa, you know, this is a lot. So I think that that's what we're seeing. And we're even seeing, like I said, more senior cases, which obviously those dogs weren't acquired during COVID, but it's a life shift and people are struggling a little bit more now. I mean, moving a couple of families that we've helped were moving because they're moving in with somebody else because they can't their living situation right now. So it's definitely been a shift in having to, I always hated working with owner surrenders. I'll, I'll be honest. I preferred taking a dog out of a shelter with whatever issues they had and just figuring it out versus worrying, is this person telling me the truth? Is there more to it? Like what's going on? But I actually like maybe at some points didn't give people enough of a chance to work with us because We've worked with a couple really amazing owner surrenders this year that I think will actually tried and did their best, but, you know, weren't able to handle a situation, but are staying involved with our rescue and even like fostering and volunteering. I definitely have seen a shift in some ways good, some ways bad. I mean, some rescue people will tell you it was amazing during the pandemic because almost nobody gave up their pets and people were adopting and that part of it was good too. But I think we all were waiting for when those puppies grew up. And I think we're seeing that. I know it does sort of feel like everyone was just sort of holding their breath for like a year. Like, okay, we're going to adopt these animals out to you. And then everyone was just waiting for the other shoe to drop, which some of us were like, who are, I like to think of myself sometimes as like silver lining, like maybe it won't happen. But of course, I mean, reality sets in a little bit. And some, you know, I think 
the surrenders that I've seen have not been from rescues, though. I will say that they've been, you know, people that purchase animals from or backyard bred dog, things like that, more so than I can't say that I've seen. And probably because the rescues are responsible enough to be dealing with their own if it, if it doesn't work out. But so far, fingers crossed, I do think that people are living a different life this year than they were two years ago, too. And they've kind of adjusted their priorities and said, I like being home. I like being with my family more. I love this dog. I do feel like I was expecting more than came back because I, I crossed my fingers and we've been really fortunate so far. So I'm thinking that a lot that are coming back into rescue were not initially in rescue, if that makes sense. Yeah. Maybe the yeah people who weren't, because I feel like when rescues adopt out, you're, you're educating and you're making sure those people are going to be responsible pet owners versus somebody. I mean, I can't speak for all backyard breeders or people who purchase from even reputable breeders. I, you can't really speak to what they're educating those people that they're giving their dogs off to. So that, that does, that is a little eye opening. I, that is a, an interesting take. Yeah. I mean, even what you were saying too about, I mean, and I know the rescues, every rescue we've talked to, they're like, yeah. And we tell people if you're going to return the dog, please return it to us. Because I think if, I mean, obviously they're devoted to this animal at this point. There's been that love there. They, they went through all the trouble of helping them heal or um, getting them in a good position to be able to be adopted out. And so they're like, no, we want to be responsible for this animal until the end. Mm-hmm. It's a requirement. Yeah. Oh, it's in the contract. So it's right. If they give the dog away, then they're in trouble. <laughs> so, and we actually like updated our contract. When was it? In 2020, we had a little bit of an issue. So we updated it that there's like a financial stipulation in there that you have to pay a lot of money if you don't do what you're supposed to do. (laughs) So I think most rescues feel that. I mean, there's a spectrum, of course, but I think most rescues feel that way that they are invested in the dog. And so if it's, I tell everybody when I do an interview, two weeks, two months, 10 years, please reach out, you know, and not just if you have to surrender, but if you have a medical bill and you can't afford it, always call us. We try to stay as involved as possible. We have a Facebook page that's a private group just for our fosters and adopters and everybody shares pictures and like siblings like connect and it's it's really cute. I love that so much. It's it feels so fun because it's like I feel like anyone who has an animal too, all you want to do is talk about your animal all day long. Yes. <laughs> so that's got to be really fun. You writing so many fundraisers and creating those stories for these animals. I'm wondering if there's one that's really stuck out to you in in all your years of, I mean, obviously hope must have been one, but I'm wondering if there's another animal who, whose story really stuck with you and kind of inspires you as you're going through every day in, in rescue. There's a lot. It was actually her puppy that almost like taught me. This was, gosh, how many years ago was that? I'm going to keep dating myself, but um, 2008. And he developed a med- the medical condition, megasophagus. His name was Cole. We, you know, as I said, we adopted him, but he wasn't supposed to live. I mean, the, the vet said that he wasn't going to make it, that he was going to be a failure to thrive, that he'd starve to death because of his eating issues. And I worked with the rescue at that time. And it really let me see that when you share the story of this animal, I mean, he was this tiny little puppy with a feeding tube and the cutest thing ever. And we made a video, which I don't even know what we made it on at that time because there was not the technology. Like I wish that I could 
save it. I don't, I remember I tried to, but I couldn't find it, but we made this like terrible video to music and people just like responded and connected with him. And he, he lived to 11, like he was an amazing dog. So, I mean, he was my own. He actually wasn't a pathway dog. He was before, but it really kind of was the like impetus to like being able to share the stories and make people connect. When I started pathway, I always say it was like on my credit card and like talking to people one at a time, there was no constant contact or whatever the, the other emails were. Like I, I would write the same email over and over and over again to donors and try to connect with them. So he was definitely the inspiration as far as like working with special needs cases for me. That's amazing. It feels so profound, right? When you, when, when you post something and people actually care, (laughs) I think, especially nowadays, I'm like, there's so much going on on social media that sometimes we'll post something and people are so involved and they're so excited to get involved and to help in whatever way they can. And to me, it, it never ceases to amaze me, especially on Cuddly. We see all these animals and we work with all these rescues. And so I feel like we're, Sydney and I, we're so privileged to be able to see like the community across the country, like everyone's heart, like for animals they've never met in person. <laughs> it's incredible. It's crazy though. I mean, my own dog, I saw a picture. She was in the Dallas, Houston, sorry, flooding. And so that was 2017. I saw her picture like randomly and reached out to the rescue. Like she was just like one of those things and they eventually sent her up to me, but she was like this bald little puppy that was like chasing somebody's car right before the floods hit. Yeah. So just like, I'm like, how do people connect to a picture? Well, I mean, clearly you just do sometimes and I just, you just do. Yeah. So, and I ended up adopting her two weeks before I had my third son. So it was like a crazy situation. My kids have grown up in rescue because I, we had no kids, you know, when I first started doing this and now we have three. So when we founded Pathway, my son was a year old. So anybody who's thinking about that, it's not, you can do both. You can, it's crazy, but you can do both. And the kids are like amazingly like immune to everything that comes with it in like a great way. Like my son he's like the best he's four and he's like the best with being around dogs and be like, no, you get out of the, you know, and the dogs respect him because he like can hold his own because he just has grown up with it. I was going to say, are all your kids, are they going to be like future rescuers and things like that? Just watching you do it. I hope so. I think they'll definitely be pet owners or they'll just be like, I can't even deal with like the rescue world and totally, you know, but they'll definitely be pet owners. Yeah. We're going to be fostering a puppy, which is not usually my thing. Like I, we stopped fostering seniors because it became hard for the kids to lose them. My son had been begging me and begging me. So we are going to be fostering a puppy at the end of this week. So we'll see how that goes. And he has a whole plan. I mean, he's the puppy's going to sleep. He said he's nine. And he told me, he's like, do you think you and daddy can help me sometimes with a few things? Aww. Like the fact that he really thought it was going to be his responsibility was cute. <laughs> I love that he made a plan for it. Like chart. <laughs> Yeah. So they, in certain ways, they're just kind of like, they see a cute puppy usually and they're like, oh, that's nice. Like, whereas most kids would be like, oh my God, you know, but then in other ways they, they really do get involved. Your kids are going to be sleeping. Well, I was going to say they're going to be sleeping well, cause that puppy's going to tire them out, but they're probably not going to be sleeping well. Cause puppy's going to be keeping them up all night. <laughs> it, they, it works out. Like our dogs are younger now. And when, when I had kids, 
I had the senior dogs at that point. So it kind of has worked out good because now like the boys are bigger, they're more active and the dogs are the two I have are crazy. So it kind of, it kind of just works out. Yeah. I do not have husky level energy. I'm just going to say that like, (laughs) so your family's, I admire everything about your family because you guys must have good energy levels. (laughs) Oh, I've been trying to find another one, but the problem is our other dog didn't, we didn't realize how small she was going to be. I, I went to the rescue and she was a puppy at that time and she only grew to seven pounds. So I'm still on the hunt for a Husky that won't eat her. (laughs) (laughs) They have a high prey drive. You know, it's not a mean thing. Just like, I want to play. I want to play. I want to play. And she does too. And she doesn't realize how small she is. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, so we always like to ask some kind of fun questions and given how long you've been in rescue, I have to ask what is the naughtiest thing you've had an animal do in rescue? I think because I live with like kids and dogs, I probably think of certain things as like not naughty. My little dog is, is really like probably the hardest, not the hardest dog because she's small. So you can kind of just stick her wherever she has given me a run. I mean, I always worked with big dogs and thought that that was challenging, but she's given me a run for my money more than any other Husky, but she runs away. She goes under the fence. She eats everything, but I would say probably the naughtiest and it's not, it's not very funny, but we work with Huskies and they just, they scare the hell out of you because they run. I've had so many that run down the road up the hill and then just look at you and play chicken with you. I mean, thankfully we haven't, the endings have been happy. So I can say that part of it, but yeah, I mean, working with the breeds that we do, pit bulls do like they're fun, but they're naughty, you know, like, and they. They like to run. <laughs> oh, yeah. They don't think they're naughty. They think they're just playing. I'm going to say I have hounds in the house. So running is um, like a extracurricular activity that they love. Oh, and it scares me. Yeah. I, we are like a no off-leash rescue because it just is so scary, right? If they get loose. Oh, yeah. Because the second you try and go after them, they're like, oh, play. And they run the other way. Yeah. I always tell people just teach the dog. I don't care if your dog can like give you paw or anything like that. Just sit and stay. You got to make sure they do that. Cause the one time one of my fosters was like running down the road and I was chasing him and he thought it was like the best game ever. And I finally was like, you sit and you stay. And he just sat down and waited. (laughs) Thank God I taught him that. You know, (laughs) That's clutch. Oh my gosh. Well, so wondering if they're obviously you like Rabari just a little bit, but are there any other rescue organizations or animal welfare groups that you kind of have a crush on that you like the work that they're doing? That's a hard question. I mean, we work very closely with Rabari. We also work with, she. well, it's kind of connected because it's uh, Stephanie from Second Chance Pet Adoption League, and she works mainly with seniors. So of course, like that, you know, a soft spot for us. And she's wonderful. She runs a dog kennel at Rabari. So yeah, I mean, I would say her rescue group is is really great. And we've worked a bit with helping Good World Shelter, which I know you guys work with too. And their work is is really profound to me because what they're dealing with is next level to what we're dealing with in a different world. We've taken dogs from them and we transform animals' lives here, but not not to that. Same. I mean, there's no opportunity if they don't come here. Oh my gosh. Yes. Our last question we always ask is, I think one of the harder ones, but is there like a quote or mantra that 
that you kind of tell yourself or that kind of keeps you inspired going along? Is there a pep talk? I think the one that I like the I'm like, I'm really corny when it comes to quotes. I probably can't like remember them all like offhand, but there's one about hope that says like when the world says, give up hope whispers, try it one more time. Oh, I love that. Especially for animal welfare too. Cause I think you do deal with so much loss. And I mean, even speaking to like the seniors you've taken in, it can feel like a lot, but if you just give it one more try, a lot of times that's all you need to kind of stay inspired. Right. It's like the just keep swimming kind of thing. You know, that's what you remind yourself. Just one foot instead of the, in front of the other. And, you know, you can only go in one direction. So, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. We're such a fan of all the work you do. And so, so honored you t- took a little time out of your day. Thank you guys for all you do, because it's really been like transformative for us and to be able to like open the doors for another animal and know that there's an organization, you know, that can help us. So thank you. We loved the chance to connect with Amy over this amazing conversation. It's incredible to hear how far she's come and all the animals' lives she's changed because of it. If you want to learn a little bit more about Pathway to Hope, you can check our show notes or our blog. And as always, remember to rate, like, and subscribe to this podcast and be sure to follow Cuddly on all social media accounts at We Love Cuddly. that's C-U-D-D-L-Y. Thanks, guys.